Transmitter device activated. Coordinate set for Earth 2. Hey everyone, welcome to the Earth 2 podcast, the podcast where we explore the origins and development of the DC Comics multiverse and the legacy of their Golden Age characters throughout the Silver and the Bronze Ages of comics. I'm Peter Watson. And I'm David Steele. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. Now, it's been a bit of a dry patch for your actual Golden Age DC superheroes recently. If it hadn't been for the Spectre, there'd have mm. been very little to talk about. And obviously, mm-hmm. as you know, we did the final issue of the Spectre's regular series very recently. He will return before too long. So this week, I'm delighted to say we're doing issue 73 of Justice League of America, which was published on the 12th of June, 1969. It's the first part of the seventh annual Justice League Justice Society crossover. But before we get into it, I have to tell you very quickly about JLA issue 72. Mm-hmm. Yes, you, indeed, Pete, say, which is JLA 72, published on the 24th of April, 1969. It's a cracking cover, very, very famous cover, one that, that escaped my purge, showing Hawk Girl in a state of distress because Hawkman has been turned into salt and it's all the Justice League's fault. Gosh. It's a brilliant cover. Look for it on the socials. We're not doing the comic, but I'm going to put the cover up on Instagram, at least Twitter, I'm sure. I love how the Atom is sitting in Superman's wrist, looking all forlorn. That's quite amusing to me. Yes, I hope he's adjusted his weight so that he's not too heavy. <laughs> Doesn't matter to Superman. It's Superman's right. strong enough that he can hold him up. But Hal Jordan's got his arm in a weird position as well, and all these Green Arrow's mm-hmm. doing something similar. I've said in the past I'm not the biggest fan of Kubert drawing superheroes, but he does a good Hawkman. An excellent Hawkman. No dispute in that. But yes, I have to tell you about issue 72, because it basically it leads into... Issue 73, Red Tornado essentially turns up at Justice League headquarters and promptly destroys the new statue of John Jones, the Martian Manhunter. Obviously, we talked about him very recently on the podcast as well. Before the League can find out what Reddy is after, an alarm goes off and the Justice League rush off to have an exciting adventure. Mm. Anyway, Red Tornado ends up becoming involved in the adventure and is instrumental in solving the trouble, leaving all details out so you can go and read the story yourself, listeners. And at the end of the story, he attempts to tell the Justice League of a problem involving the Justice Society, but basically, and it's hilarious to read, the Justice League aren't interested. (laughs) They're just sort of like, yeah, okay, you can tell us later, Red Tornado, because Hawkgirl and Hawkman have been reunited and they're happy. You feel sorry for Reddy in a way. It's almost like he's a pest that no one has any time for. He is. So that, essentially, is what we need to know about issue 72. So we now arrive at issue 73. Pete C, would you like to tell everyone about the cover? It's a very striking cover. It's Joe Kubert again. In the foreground, there is a little boy. Mm. He's got a massive grin on his face, and he's pulled a lamppost out of the ground. And behind him are an array of Justice Society members. Mm. From left to right, we have the Superman of Earth 2 making his Earth 2 podcast debut. Gosh, how exciting. We haven't done one of his stories yet. Wow. Followed by Dr. Midnight, Dr. Fate, Green Lantern, Starman and Wonder Woman. And the little boy is saying, Superheroes? Big deal! I can do as good as any of you, even better! And it has to be said, the Justice Society members don't look too impressed either way, do they? (laughs) No, definitely not. Starman actually looks as if he's giving him a hard stare. (laughs) Yes, a la Paddington. Mm. Green Lantern looks super grumpy. Mm -hmm. Wonder Woman, she she looks more concerned about the damage being done to public property. That's true. Rather than anything else. Yeah, Joe Kubert drawing superheroes. I mean, Supes looks all right, quite barrel-chested and broad-shouldered, but the rest of them... Mm -hmm. I am a Kubert fan, as I think I've probably said in the past. There's a time and a place, though, and Mm -hmm. there's a sketchy, rough quality to his art, which I don't think suits superheroes. 
This will be a recurring motif in the podcast. Listeners, I can only apologise. Just wait till we get to the <laughs> early issues of All-Star Squadron. Indeed, yes. So, issue 73 of the GLA, cover dated August 73, but as I said at the top, published 12th of June 69, which is basically, oh, about a week and a half before Patrick Troughton's final episode as the regular Doctor Who. That's quite interesting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Right, shall we jump straight in? Let's do so. So, our opening page, made up of three panels, is a very large one on the left, which has basically, imagine almost like a cross between the floating heads in the background of Superman the movie and the Krypton scenes, mm-hmm. and the sun from the Teletubbies. <laughs> yes. So we have 12 angry, moody-looking suns of all different colours, yellow, green, blue, pink, orange. And it's almost like they're having a conversation. Our introductory caption says, Come with us to a time beyond time, a space beyond space, and hearken to the words of the Council of Living Stars. The Council of Living Stars, fantastic. So yes, they're all talking. We have a few speech bubbles here. The first one says... It is the finding of a most of us body that the star who has been named Aquarius is guilty of crimes most heinous. It is our verdict that Aquarius be forever banished from our presence and set to wandering the void for now and all eternity. It is our further judgment that Aquarius be bereft of all energy save that which is needed to sustain life. Let the sentence be executed. And then in panel two, there's a shot of multicoloured sun faces, all blasting what looks like radiant heat into the centre of their little gathering, blasting Aquarius. We have a caption for the next panel that says, Thus, what had once been a living star, a sun which could think and feel, is reduced to a dim moat of living matter, cast adrift in the unimaginable nothingness between the farthest reaches of the cosmos. For countless eons it eddies aimlessly and nurtures its hate, until at last it spies a planet called Earth. Yes, and this panel shows essentially, it's a very original series Star Trek type baddie. You know, I'm reminded yes. of that episode of Friends, I think I've made this reference before. when The one with the sonogram, yes. Yeah, someone says, what is that? And Chandler makes the joke, I'm not sure, it's, but it looks as though it's about to attack the Enterprise. So if you yes. can imagine just a sort of formless twisting shape of bluey-yellow radiation that seems to be drifting towards a green globe, which doesn't, to be honest, look very much like Earth in this panel, it must be said. (laughs) Mm. Anyway, and this page is rounded out with our story title, which says, Starlight, Star Bright, Death Star I See Tonight. Well, so there's some Madonna and Star Wars references straight away. Yes. A couple of tiny caption boxes inform us that the story is... Written by Denny O'Neill and penciled by Dick Dillon and inked by Sid Green. Now, before we got on with it, listeners, I was surprised in the prep for this. There's an awful lot of see-what-you-see dialogue and captions that basically describe the action. So it's going to make it a little more straightforward for us to tell you, but it does come across a little bit like you're just reading illustrated prose, which, to be honest, we were kind of getting away from in some of the stories we've done recently. So it feels like a bit of a backward step, but... I'll talk a bit more about that when we finish the story. So, top of page two, there is some more text, and it says... How to begin. What words and pictures can tell this tale of two worlds? It is not enough to say that you are about to read yet another saga of... The Justice League of America. Big Justice League logo box there. The text continues. But begin we must. In fact... Begin we already have, for in the previous issue you saw how the Red Tornado rescued the JLA from a horde of Chthonic demons. 
Now let us rejoin Earth's mightiest heroes and their bizarre visitor in their secret sanctuary. So yes, this is interesting. Red Tornado appears to be sat down in a comfy chair, which amuses me no end because he's a robot. <laughs> and a few members of the JLA are sat around them. We see Batman, Green Lantern, Hal Jordan, Atom Ray Palmer, Hawkman and Superman. And the Atom is perched on Batman's knee, amusingly. And the Atom is saying, Okay, ready? You're overhearing your circuits trying to tell us something. Spit it out, pal. Superman says, You mentioned our pals on Earth too, the Justice Society, are in trouble? Reddy replies, Not only the JSA, the whole planet, they are faced with a menace that threatens civilization itself and are helpless to stop it. The Atom interrupts, saying, That's hard to believe. They're a wide-walking bunch. Nonetheless, it is true. As humanoids go, you're a heck of a suspense builder. We're listening. Give. The caption for the next panel as Reddy begins his tale says, The colourfully clad crusaders draw closer. No sound breaks the silence. No sound save the quiet voice of the red tornado telling the following incredible story. And we arrive at the top of page three. The time, spring evening, 1969. The place... A private observatory on an isolated, windswept hilltop in America, on Earth 2. Our world's twin separated from us by a dimensional barrier. And the man, Ted Knight, amateur astronomer and secretly the crime-fighting Starman. So two panels at the top of page three, one showing the dome of the observatory, and in the night sky above it, that twisting, shapeless burst of energy that we saw at the end of page one. And panel two shows Ted Knight in civvies peering into the telescope, and he's thinking, Odd. That glow in the eastern quadrant of the sky, I don't recognise it, and it seems to be coming closer. It's too small to be a comet, moving too slowly to be a meteoroid, and too big for anything else. I'd better investigate as Starman. I'm probably being too jumpy, but on the other hand, I don't have anything better to do. And we see Ted putting on a superhero costume, caption for panel four, Instants later... And Ted Knight Starman takes to the sky. Now we can see that the energy blob in the sky is taking on a bit more of a human shape. We can see a face taking form. And as he flies up towards it, Starman is thinking... The glow has stopped. It's hovering over my telescope. Something spooky about it. Let's see what happens when I nudge it gently with a smidgen of stellar energy from my cosmic rod. And as he blasts it in the final panel of page three, he thinks... Nothing. That's what happened. I might as well try to move a mountain with a goose feather. Okay, let's turn on the juice and give it a real cosmic blast. So the first caption on page four says, Starman's ray strikes the eerie figure and the astral avenger is promptly hurled backward. And as Ted flies backward, the bolt ricochets off the energy creature and Starman thinks, Not only did it toss my blast back in my lap, it greatly increased the blast's power. I'm beginning to think I'll need help, but I dare not go for it. I can't risk letting this creature escape. He recovers himself, flies back towards it in the next panel, thinking, Judging from the deception I'm getting, it's anything but friendly. Perhaps old-fashioned fisticuffs will succeed where the rod failed. And the next panel's cracking. Ted has been rendered immaculately in these panels by Dick Dillon. He looks almost like he's been drawn by his original artist, Jack Burnley. It's phenomenal. So, Ted indeed tries to punch the energy shape. Nothing much happens, he thinks. Ugh. All that got me is a fistful of sore knuckles. I felt softer rocks, yet I can see moonlight through it. And then Ted very helpfully in the next panel tells us what happens when he thinks... What? Grabbing my cosmic rod. 
Somehow it must know that without the rod I'll drop like a lead weight, and we're a good fifty feet above the ground. Yeah, it's almost like the creature is forming arms and hands and reaching out towards Ted, and it's been successful. The final panel, Ted starts to fall towards the ground as the creature has removed the cosmic rod from his hand. And as he starts to fall, Ted thinks, It's too strong for me. Twisted my fingers loose. Change of scenery then for page five. The caption of the first panel says, At that moment, lovely Dinah Drake Lance and her private investigator husband Larry are entering Ted Knight's observatory. Yeah, we see Dinah in civvies with her black hair wearing a pink blouse. Larry's got a brown suit and his little hat on. Dinah's carrying a tray, which appears to have a couple of hamburgers and some coffee on it. And indeed, she's saying, Ted gets so engrossed in his stargazing, he usually forgets to eat. He'll appreciate these hamburgers. Larry replies, Don't be certain, baby. The last burgers we got from that carry-out joint tasted like newspaper. Last year's newspaper. Wonder where Ted's at. And very helpfully, the next caption says, Larry's question is answered as a limp star man crashes through a skylight. Yes, and with a massive burst of concussive force, Starman lands on a table surface, scattering everything. Dinah drops the tray, and they rush towards him, and Larry says in the next panel, He's hurt, but he's still breathing. I got a feeling we've walked into trouble, big trouble. I'll use my first aid training to bring Starman around if I can. And I'll see if I can find out what attacked him. As Black Canary. Check, but take it careful, baby. And the caption for the next panel. Swiftly, Dinah dons a blonde wig and black garments, the garb of Earth 2's foremost feminine fighter. Yep, and we see Dinah dressing up as Black Canary in a similar panel, actually, to what we saw Ted doing a couple of pages earlier. Nice echoes of their Brave and the Bold stories there, mm-hmm. must be said. So, top of page six. And even more swiftly, she circles the grounds, peering into every shadow, every building. Yep, we see Black Canadian outside the observatory, approaching a corner, and she's thinking, Everything seems to be in order. Starman's attacker must have fled. No sense looking any longer. I'll see if I can help Larry. And then in the next panel, we see a silhouette, obviously of a male figure, looming up behind Dinah. She says, Larry! Larry! Where are you, sweetheart? And panel three, we see that the figure is revealed as Larry, with a manic look in his eye, holding what looks like a table leg and a bit of table in his hand, Green lurid lighting, they're really getting a benefit of these increased colour palettes. He looms behind Black Canary, lifting a piece of table, and he says, Right here, baby. And a caption closes out this panel, saying, His face twisted with madness, Larry springs forward and swings his heavy weapon towards his wife's unprotected skull. Will it land on the second page following? Well, we arrive on page seven. Very helpfully, the captions for the next three panels basically tell us what happens. Glancing up, the Black Canary glimpses an arm heaving the crude weapon at her. Instinctively, her trained body reacts with the grace and lithe strength of a ballet dancer. The blonde bombshell hurls her attacker, head over heels, into a perfectly timed judo throw, and only then discovers he is... And as Larry collides with the ground with a quump sound effect, Dinah flips him over, she says, Larry! She moves close on the next panel. Was that some kind of joke? Larry rubs his head and says, Blamed if I know. I was doctoring Starman, and the next thing you were tossing me through the air. Canary looks very uncomfortable in the next panel. She hugs herself by folding her arms, and she says, Larry, there's something evil nearby. I can feel it in my bones. You finish attending to Starman, whilst I summon the Justice Society. 
Touching a tiny transmitter in her belt buckle, the girl gladiatrix sends forth a summons to... And we get a roll call, basically, in the first panel of page 8, as we see five superheroes leaping into action. Doctor Fate, magician and master manipulator of the occult. Wonder Woman, Amazon Princess and foe to wrongdoers. Green Lantern, high-flying, hard-hitting, power-ringing crime buster. Doctor Midnight, a blind man who does more for the cause of justice than most sighted people. (laughs) And finally, that strange being from another planet whose powers and abilities are far beyond those of Earthlings... Superman. There are a couple of little starred footnotes at the bottom of this panel. After the introduction of Green Lantern, there's a footnote that says, Some Earth 2 superheroes are counterparts of those on Earth 1, and some, as you can see, aren't. And following Wonder Woman's introductory caption, we have another caption that says, Apparently Earth 2's Wonder Woman hasn't suffered the fate of Earth 1's Diana Prince. Complete loss of Amazon powers. But don't feel sorry for Di, she's doing alright. A fact which readers of a magazine titled The New Wonder Woman well know. Gosh, do you remember the days when we used to talk about Wonder Woman all the time on the podcast? (laughs) Anyway, so, page 8 is rounded out with one more panel that's captioned. However, each is delayed. Green Lantern is flying toward Black Canary Signal when... Yes, it's a good shot of Alan in flight here, GL. It's worth noticing that his chest symbol is much simpler at this point. It's basically morphed into mm-hmm. the same chest symbol that Al Jordan, the Earth One Green Lantern, has. So it doesn't look like the stylized yes. lantern with a handle that we're used to seeing. Green Lantern of E2 is flying past a large electrical neon sign, which shows a couple of Conquistador-type soldiers fighting. Mm-hmm. But it's captioned, Coming to a theatre near you, swords against sorcerers. Anyway, as he flies towards this sign, the big guy is thinking, Odd. I could have sworn the figures on that electric sign moved. And sure enough, it does look as if they are starting to come to life. There's a bit of a glow around them. And as we arrive at the top of page 9, the first caption says, Suddenly, the electric gladiators shimmer, filled with life and battle into the streets. Yeah, the two neon figures, we can see that actually they do look, I suppose, like Roman gladiators as well. It's quite odd. If you've got the comic, you'll, you'll be able to see what they look like. They've grown out of the sign. They're standing in the pavement. People are panicking and screaming. And amusingly, the giant neon battlers have a conversation. The first one says, Thou shalt have taste of my goodly blade, varlet. Cease thy prattling, knavish lout. Green Lantern has made it onto the pavement by this point, and he can't believe what he's seeing. He thinks, I'm probably imagining this. I mean, it can't be real, so I might as well imagine it all the way. Alan uses his power ring to generate a giant green sword, and he joins the conversation in the battle, saying, Can anyone play? Or do you fellows just hate each other? And one of the neon figures says, Oh, a snivelling blackguard! The next panel, Green Lantern strikes with his sword, making contact with a crash, and he thinks, If that's a fair example of the dialogue those guys speak in the movie, I'll have to give it a miss. They don't fight any better than they talk. Page 9 is rounded out, as Alan then generates a shield with his power ring, and the neon figure, struck by it, with a quam sound effect. Now, that's quite amusing, because quam is a Scottish Borders acronym, which means Ken what I mean. So that's quite interesting, seeing that written oh, down. There you go. <laughs> and it looks as though the, the neon figure has been shattered after being struck with Alan Shield. And GL thinks, still, they didn't do too badly for animated signs. So we arrive at the top of page 10. Green Lantern takes the air flying off. Obviously, he's dealt with the big neon figures. And he's thinking, I won't wait around for explanations. But I have a hunch Black Canary's SOS and those frisky gladiators are connected. So the caption for panel two. 
Even as the Emerald Crusader streaks away, his colleague Dr. Midnight is about to encounter another bizarre incident nearby. And there's a lot to unpack in this panel. There's a little boy with his dad and a couple of other pedestrians on the pavement. The little boy's pointing at a shop window display which says, Dr. Midnight Dolls, as advertised on TV, batteries not included. And we see three little Chuck McNider action figures underneath. What would you need batteries <laughs> for in a Dr. Midnight action figure? Maybe it's to activate his blackout bombs. Or so he can say some of his famous Dr. Midnight catchphrases. Like, my glasses, my glasses, I can't <laughs> see without my glasses. Hootie, where are you? That sort of thing. <laughs> Hootie sold separately. <laughs> yes. Do you remember when DC Direct put a Dr. Midnight action figure and you could interchange his arms? I think it was his right arm. You could take off the hand. All right. So there was just a normal hand or else there was one with Hootie. Oh, excellent. I think on the occasions that I've posted the Dr. Midnight action figure on the socials, I have mixed it up. So there you go. Listen, mm-hmm. let's check that out if you can be so inclined. The little boy's <laughs> grabbing his dad's sleeve and he says, Daddy, I want a Dr. Midnight doll. But his dad has noticed the person who's running down the pavement towards him, the caption just told us about. And his dad says, Look, son, there's Dr. Midnight in person. Little boy's not having it. He shoves his dad to the ground in the next panel saying, Ah, I don't want Dr. Midnight in person. I want a doll. And a woman who's standing on the pavement nearby disapprovingly says, I simply don't understand this younger generation. The next panel, the boy has gone mad. He has super strength, it seems now, because he punches a car that's nearby, shattering the glass. And he says, I want a doll. And if I don't get it, I'll break everything. And then in the next panel, final panel of page 10, he rips a lamppost up from the ground, like we saw on the cover, with a scrumph sound effect, and he proclaims everything. As we arrive at the top of page 11, the lady who is on the pavement says to Dr. Midnight, Well, are you just going to stand there, Mr. Superhero, and let that brat wreck the whole city? Dr. Midnight rubs his head and says, oh, I'm not quite certain how to stop a maniacal four-year-old. In fact, I'm not quite certain I'm in my right mind. Oh well, if I'm having a fantasy, I might as well make the most of it. Doc leaps forward in the next panel saying, Pardon me, Sonny, would you mind oof, but with a whop? The little boy's punched him in the stomach. Dr Midnight thinks, that settles it. I could never fantasise so much pain. The little boy, as he punches Chuck in the tummy, says, Want a doll? The little boy's rampage continues in the next panel. We see him tearing the wheel off of a car. Dr Midnight has a solution, though, he thinks. This blackout bomb won't harm that wild kid, but it'll slow him down. And we see that Chuck hurls a blackout bomb which explodes, throwing up the black cloud. Dr. Midnight continues to think, at least he won't be able to see what he's destroying. And then the caption for the final panel of page 11 says, When the thick black mist clears... Yeah, the little boy's calmed down, he's crying. With a hand up to his eyes, he says, Ah! I want my daddy! His father's beside him saying, Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, wait till I tell your mother. Are you going to get it? And side of the panel, Dr. Midnight is thinking, lad's back to normal. Apparently he doesn't even remember his uh, tantrum. I think Dr. Midnight has some strong opinions in modern parenting. Mm -hmm. So we arrive at the top of page 12. The caption for the first panel says, Meanwhile, another doctor, Fate, is sweeping swiftly toward Ted Knight's estate. Born aloft by eldritch forces. That almost rhymed. As he flies along, Dr. Fate is thinking. I sense vibrations in the air. Evil vibrations. They grow more definite as I near the night house. And it looks as though there are some dark clouds gathering in the sky around him as he flies along. He thinks in the next panel. Wait, 
My psi center detects another source of the evil emanations, those rain clouds. Yet what can be perilous about mere rain? Caption for panel three says, In answer to the mystic mage's unspoken question, he suddenly feels a stinging, searing sensation as the air fills with droplets of fire. Gosh, yes, little drops of flame start falling onto his helmet. He looks a little bit perplexed, it must be said. Dr. Fate thinks, Flame, instead of water, spewing from the clouds. Surely some dark demon is abroad this day. Very helpfully, in the next panel, Dr. Fate describes what he's up to. An ectoplasmic aura will protect me while I attempt to disperse the unnatural things with an astral bolt. Yes, we can see a golden aura appears around him, and he casts, still doing the sort of devil hands sign with his hands. There's no sign of any Egyptology symbols at this point. A big burst of yellow lightning with a vzzzt strikes into the clouds. Does that have any effect? Well, Dr. Fate thinks in the final panel of page 12. I encounter resistance. Whatever magic I combat is stronger than any I clash with before. Gosh, yes, it looks like he's being flung back by bolts of flame. In the first panel of page 13, he gestures again, casting some more energy into the ether as he thinks. My two-handed bolt attack has eliminated the flame clouds, but though I strain my skills to their very limit, still I am being pushed back. Second panel of page 13, again very helpfully, Dr. Fate tells us what's going on. My foe is surely not of this earth. He drives me before him as a hurricane drives a leaf. Drives me toward my destination, the origin of Black Canary's emergency signal. Best that I divert some astral energy downward to cushion my landing. Yes, so what we really see here is Dr. Fate casting another burst of energy behind him as the clouds, it seems, twirl around him, forcing him down, and he's gestured with his right hand and formed a massive cushion on the floor, which he's obviously going to land safely in. Off camera, a voice says... Dr. Fate! And we see Dr. Midnight, Black Canary, Green Lantern and Larry Lance running up to him in the next panel. Black Canary is saying, What's wrong? You seem exhausted. Dr. Fate is sitting up, hand to his head, and he replies, I very nearly am. Some ebony mystic force struck at me. In the next panel, he gestures looking up at the sky, saying, Behold, the dark fog has pursued me. It swirls, it moves as though alive. Yes, and we can see now that it's actually very reminiscent of the shapeless energy form that we saw attacking Starman at the start of the story. And a voice comes from this twisting, twirling cloud of energy, and it says, Alive? Indeed I am, frail envelope of flesh. Okay, seven pages of that coming up, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> As we arrive on page 14, the cloud of energy begins to take human form, becoming clearer over three panels, as it says, Alive and soon to be fulfilled, supremely mad, I glory in madness, and with this wonder stick to distill and direct the chill fires within me, supremely powerful. Yes, we see the creature is holding Starman's gravity rod, or cosmic rod, whatever it is at this point, in his right hand. He continues in the third panel of page 14, saying, Tremble, earthlings, tremble and gaze upon Aquarius. Listeners, this is literally the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Mm. We should probably have checked when the song by The Fifth Dimension <laughs> was in the charts. When was here out? Listeners, maybe you could do that for yourself. So, page 14, the story panels only take up half the page, and panel 3 is rounded out with a caption that says, Too astonished to speak, the Justice Society members stare up at the giant and human star creature. Listen to his voice like the legs of a thousand monstrous spiders scraping over slate. This is their enemy and yours. 
And a little arrow guides us towards page 15, but we should probably mention that the rest of page 14 is taken up with a nice DC house ad for an issue of Swing with Scooter. Hey. All sorts of nonsense going on there. So, first panel on page 15, we can see that Aquarius has taken on a much clearer, more defined human form. The members of the Justice Society are standing on the ground looking up at him. He's still holding the cosmic rod in his right hand as he laments. Ah, sad was my lot. An unhappy exile I wandered through the void for lo, many eons. A stranger and alone. My fellows had passed a dread sentence upon me because of my love of chaos. I despise order and did attempt to upset the natural working of the universe. In truth so weakened was I that often I could barely sustain life. He continues in panel two. Then, oh happiness, I happened upon this delightful rod. It amplifies the strength I have left, increases it until I am mighty as ever. Is not that humorous, Earthlings? Yes, we can see that the cosmic rod sort of glows here. We cut back to the JSA. Green Lantern says, Absolutely uproarious! Dr. Midnight whispers, It doesn't take a medical man to recognise those symptoms. He's a manic depressive, with a generous dose of schizophrenia thrown in. Well... Dr. Midnight's not one for making snap judgments <laughs> without working out someone's full medical history. Hey, it was the 60s. They should get Jersey Cream psychiatrists in instead. <laughs> Black Canary replies to the doc saying, In other words, mad as a hatter. And Larry says, I'll keep him talking until one of you costume types figure out a way to take him. Hey, Aquarius, mind letting us in on your plans? And Aquarius replies in the final panel of page 15, saying, My pleasure. I have been moving through your world, testing myself, sowing a bit of disorder hither and yon. Nothing spectacular, you understand. Just a mere touch upon a small human, upon a large picture, upon clouds. Piddling efforts all. So that's Andy recap of his mischief so far. As we arrive at the top of page 16, we can see that they're all actually very close to Starman's Observatory. Aquarius continues, I confess that my exile has robbed me of self-confidence. But I am delighted to relate I have regained it. Now I am again convinced of my greatness. First I shall reduce Earth to shambles, then I shall turn my attention to the entire universe. Blimey. I'm lost for words. Panel 3 has a caption that says, At that instant, the remaining Justice Society members, each delayed by personal matters, reach the scene. Yes, because Red Tornado, Superman and Wonder Woman are all flying in. Red Tornado is saying, That big one's a bad one, right, Superman? From what my superhearing has picked up, I judge he's more sick than villainous. Wonder Woman says, well, Nonetheless, we'd better disable him. Reddy says in the next panel, Can I help? And Swoops replies, Look, Red Tornado, I have nothing against you personally, but you have a way of, well, botching things. I suggest you sit this out. Wonder Woman, <laughs> with a bit of side-eye, it must be said, she says, I second that suggestion. Reddy gets a close-up on the first panel of page 17, as he says, It's not fair. The reason I don't act right is that I don't get any practice. They never let me catch criminals. They think I'm just a machine. Panel 2. It's a close-up of Aquarius. Superman flies towards him. Aquarius says, Another ridiculous human. And the Big Blue says, I don't suppose you'd care to surrender quietly. Surrender? 
Why, you must be crazy. And the next panel, with a swock, Superman punches Aquarius on the chin, saying, there is a classic case of the pot calling the kettle black. And he thinks, it shouldn't take more than a single good punch. But then we see in the final panel of page 17, Aquarius hasn't been knocked out. Soup says, incredible, he's still conscious. Conscious and angry. I had intended to permit this planet another few days of existence while I amused myself. But you do not deserve my indulgence. I shall plunge Earth into eternal doom. And he continues in the first panel, the next page, saying, Beginning with you. And he uses the cosmic rod to strike Superman. We should really put a bit more emphasis on this. This is Superman. Yeah. This is the Earth 2 Superman. This is the Golden Age Superman making his debut in the podcast, flying in, and he's fighting a giant living star. Good grief. Mm-hmm. So Supes gets struck square in the chest by the cosmic rod. He goes flying backwards thinking, Magic! More deadly to me than kryptonite. I can't withstand it. Wonder Woman leaps into action in panel two, thinking, If I can snare Starman's rod, we may have a chance against Aquarius. She's twirling her lasso. Aquarius turns the one season and says, Oh, a female foe. <laughs> I'll serve you more gently than your male friend. But you too will taste defeat. Diana attempts to lasso him. She's unsuccessful, and she thinks, I missed. Big as he is, he's quick as a cat. And then we notice that Aquarius is now glowing a bright yellow. Wonder Woman thinks, that heat. He's radiating a light hot as a small sun. I've got to retreat or be boiled alive. Aquarius looks delighted, exultant in the next panel, as he raises the cosmic rod in the air and cries, Such sport! Such fun! I have not had in eons! The JC members surround the unconscious Superman in the next panel. Black Canary says, I never thought I'd see him fallen, Larry says. First Starman, now Superman. And I guess we're next. Wonder Woman leans in close towards Soups, and she says, Us and the world. There's more than our lives at stake. Green Lantern concludes this panel saying, Yes, Wonder Woman, there's the future of the universe hanging in the balance, depending on our ability to fight and win. Got a cracking shot of all the heroes in the first panel of page 19. Dr. Midnight says, Yet. Aquarius so easily beat the strongest of us. Superman and Wonder Woman. What can we do? Larry says. I'll tell you. You can do what any man can do, superhero or not. You can try. Dr. Fate concludes. Larry Lance puts us to shame. We can try, and we shall. And then the caption for the next panel says. Stealing themselves for the most momentous struggle in history, their faces drawn in grim determination, the valiant band leaps forward. And a massive dynamic panel runs out the rest of page 19. We see Aquarius still glowing bright yellow as Dr. Fate, Black Canary, Green Lantern, Dr. Midnight and Larry all rush towards him. Aquarius says, Oh, more games, Earthlings! More entertainment for Aquarius! I could toy with you further, but I grow weary of trifling. The time has come to end our charade, and with it, this moat called Earth. Over the page then to page 20, and this panel is definitely going on the socials. Mm-hmm. Aquarius returned to a bright blue, and we can see that it now looks like he's wearing boots and underpants. He's definitely much more clearly defined as sort of regular humanoid. It's hard to describe. He's gesturing with a cosmic rod, and all sorts of pink energies radiating out from him. And, well, 
I'll have the caption before I do the rest of the description. The caption's for this page. It happens then. From the gargantuan form of Aquarius, shimmering rays, colder than any dream of death, leap and spread. Spread to every corner of the planet. Touch every stone, every plant, the very core of Earth itself. Touch every living being. And all fade like stars in the dawn. Nothing more, simply fade, and are no longer there, no longer anywhere. Yes, it's an unusual montage almost, showing various sort of scenes around the world as a polar bear and some people looking forward. I'm tempted to think that that's the little boy and his dad who we met earlier on when Doctor Midnight was having trouble. Oh, could be. And we can see the observatory. There's other people just looking up into the sky. There's obviously some kind of Aboriginal native. It's very striking. It reminds me of some of the collage stuff that Jack Kirby was doing in Fantastic Four. Yes, oh, very reminiscent of that. Round about this sort of mm-hmm. time, well, maybe a little bit earlier than this, actually. Mm-hmm. But basically, Aquarius stands in the middle, and as the burst of pink energy are radiating outwards, everything's fading into black and white, which is a very good way, I suppose, of rendering what the captions were telling us everything is just fading out and no longer there. And so we arrive at the top of page 21, and in the first panel we see that not everything was destroyed by what Aquarius was up to. There's a glowing pink bubble with the members of the Justice Society inside it. Black Canary says, Everything is gone. Everything except us. Dr. Fate says, I saw what Aquarius was doing and erected an ectoplasmic shield around this area, but my magic is not great enough to save the others. Close up, Dr. Fate continues, We have just witnessed... The end of the world. Now, let's take a second to look at that panel of Dr. Fate. Isn't that absolutely hecking brilliant? Yes. So much character on a plain metallic helmet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know, it's, it's stunning. Like The, the dark eyes, mm-hmm. but the, the way the light is just showing, it's almost showing that his face is impassive and it's very, very effective. And the sunken forward head in resignation. It's, it's cracking. Mm-hmm. Larry pipes up in the next panel saying, Don't speak in riddles, man. And the doctor replies, I do not, Larry Lance. Aquarius has transported the people and objects of Earth to another dimension, another plane of existence. There they will remain as long as we continue to exist, for their only link with reality is our minds. Only our consciousness is checking the flood of chaos, of nothingness, Aquarius is loosed. For when we perish, all is lost. Final panel of page 21, we're with the assembled heroes. Superman seems to have recovered, which helps. They're looking out of the bubble. We can see the distorted face of Aquarius outside them. As he says, And you will perish. Your magic is puny compared to mine. He takes up the length of page 22 on the left-hand side as he cradles the bubble in his hands, saying, I am weary. My last effort exhausted me, but soon when I have recovered, I shall sunder your frail shield Empty you out and complete my task. Oh, the fun it will be knowing that you are helpless increases my merriment. You, the last humans of this world, trapped within your own device, waiting for the last moment. Surely you'll see the humour. We're inside the bubble in panel three here, as Dr. Fate thinks. I dare not tell the others, lest Aquarius overhear me. We have a single, slim hope. And the caption for the final panel of page 22 says, A single, slim hope for an instant before Aquarius committed his final fearsome act. Dr. Fate sent a telepathic message to the Red Tornado. Yes, a panel showing Red Tornado, who I'd completely forgotten about, I don't mind saying. (laughs) (laughs) 
flying up into the air, receiving Dr. Fate's message. Dr. Fate's message says, Go to Earth-1, contact the Justice League, tell them of our plight. And Reddy replies, confidently, <laughs> I, I'll do my best. So we're told we're continued in the second page following. We pass one of those adverts for things you can send away for, including spy cameras and cuckoo clocks and steam engines and electric shock generators and rubber masks and jet engines and magnets and how to draw immediately and see horses and such things. And we arrive on the final page of the story. The caption for the massive panel of page 23 says, The hapless android has finished his tale and the Justice League sits in stunned silence. Finally, the atom bursts out. Yes, the atom perched on Red Tornado's shoulder says, We kept Reddy sitting around here for almost two weeks before we heard him out. Aquarius may have recovered days ago. I, I tried to make you listen. Superman replies, saying, It's not your fault. It's ours. Green Lantern Hal Jordan sat at the table says, There's no sense in wasting precious minutes blaming ourselves. Batman chips in with, Right, we've got work to do. The most important task we've ever undertaken. And Hawkman concludes by saying, I'll signal our missing members. We'll need all the help we can get. Yes, and this startling cliffhanger ending is rounded out with a caption that says, Dire destruction and death await the Justice League as they pit themselves against the dread Aquarius. The saga of the living insane star reaches a shattering climax next issue. It could be the absolute end. end. Gosh, well then. Craigie, there you go. What do you think of that then, Pete <laughs> I enjoyed the heck out of that. <laughs> I don't know if it was more just performing it or whether it was. <laughs> <laughs> now that my voice has finally recovered, there's not too much to say, unlike the last couple of stories. <laughs> yes, congratulations on your Aquarius. <laughs> Definitely the definitive performance as a living star of my lifetime, I feel. Yeah, uh-huh. true. i got to say, I, you know, I felt it was a little bit disposable. It's quite impressive that he's destroyed mm-hmm. everything and just a handful of GSAs are all that are left. Yeah. I'm getting a bit bored with the Justice Society in the first half of a story and then everyone all together in the set. I'm, yeah, the jelly flying into the rescue in the second part. I still think my favourite one is the fourth one when the Spectre got brought in and everyone all got swapped between the us at the start. Anti-matter man. Yeah, there was a good mix of characters. As good as it is to, to finally be doing another story featuring the Golden Age superheroes, I just wish it had been a bit more involved straight away with the team being mixed up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know what you mean, yeah. It does mean that we get to spend more time with the JSA. Yes. I quite enjoy that in the Justice League book, because obviously they do have a following. They're still making this annual crossover happen. Mm-hmm. So it's obviously a popular concept, and this is when we get to spend time with them. Yeah, and I suppose, I mean, I'm moaning about basically what is the, the formula at this point, which is... Yeah, uh-huh. The JSA, for one issue a year, get to be mm. the stars of the comic, and then they team yeah. up with the other guys in, in the next one. You know, I shouldn't be moaning too much. It's, it's interesting to see Starman being involved at the start. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then getting taken out. I mean, this is the issue that James Robinson alludes to in one of... It was either one of the introductions to one of the collected editions of Starman mm. or one of his text pages in the Starman series. I feel like it was in one of the omnibus editions. When he first encountered Ted Knight, was him Ted Knight flying up into the sky and fighting this giant mm-hmm. glowing creature. So yeah. this is the story which led us to James Robinson and Tony Harris's Starman. So we should be quite Gosh. grateful for it from that point of view. Indeed, yeah. It's a good mix of characters. I was glad that Doctor Midnight got a little bit of the spotlight. I'm fascinated mm-hmm. by the Doctor Midnight action figure that he has such a profile <laughs> that you can get action figures of him. Who do you think gets the money for that licensing for the merchandise? Well, 
That's the point. I mean, does Dr. Midnight have a liaison guy? Does he do it himself? Has he got an agreement with Mattel or Hasbro or whoever it would have been at this point that was manufacturing Mm -hmm. such things? One thing that sort of occurs to me very quickly, next year's the 1970 JLA-JSA team-up, which are actually Mm -hmm. not that far away from. We'll get to that much more sooner than than we've got to this one. It kind of flags up Dr. Midnight as being the closest equivalent to the Batman of Earth 1. Could it be on Earth Mm. 2 there's a successful primetime Doctor Midnight TV series where he's played by Adam West or something, or <laughs> you know, do you have a kid sidekick? Is there a Midnight Girl? I don't know. It's <laughs> it's fascinating just to think about that that he must have some kind of profile. Yeah, some of the other guys I don't think were served as well. Like Doctor Fate got a good chance to shine. Yeah, Green Lantern's moments were a little bit generic, and I really feel that the story didn't make enough of a fuss about the fact that this was you know we had to catch ourselves and remind ourselves that this is the the proper debut of the Earth 2 Superman which is very very exciting huge I wonder if that's editorially driven by Julie Schwartz or if this is something that Denny O'Neill brought and bearing in mind all the crossovers we've read so far have been written by Gardner Fox this is the first one written by someone else this is Denny O'Neill of course so he's bringing his own flavour to it but maybe Julie Schwartz was saying maybe stick to the formula for your first one mm. uh, you know try that because obviously you know, Denny he's been writing comics for a while at this point but mm. still he's still fairly new yeah. obviously taking on the JLA is a big commitment yeah playing it safe in his first one probably quite sensible mm-hmm. but you know I think that the arrival of Superman the original superhero yeah as I flick backwards to page 16 we don't even see his face in his first panel. We just see him sort of flying in from behind. Yeah. But it would have been nice to sort of see them all, Red Tornado and Superman, and actually that's not true because there is that earlier panel of them all leaping into action. But when he arrives on the scene, mm-hmm. it would have been nice to see him properly arriving. Maybe yeah. if I was drawing that, I would have flipped the, the point of view shot of that panel round yeah. so that it was perhaps Aquarius looking up at them and them arriving rather than them sort of flying down and seeing Aquarius. Mm-hmm. Draw the hero shot. One thing we should mention, it's interesting that this traditional Wonder Woman is being used. Yes. Given that the Earth One Diana is all about the aim appeal. Yeah rip-offs at this point. Which is being written by Denny O'Neill. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and we should also mention, very, very early on, they do actually say that Earth 2 is our world's twin. Yes. So suggesting that we are on Earth 1. Again, not for the first time that's been suggested. <laughs> Again, worth highlighting as we continue to sort of chronicle mm-hmm. and these sort of things. So it'll be interesting to see when that finally sort of stops, probably after there have yeah. been a few more Earth Prime stories. Speaking of Wonder Woman, there's a bit of a diss yes. on Wonder Woman early on as Black Canary gets changed. Because it says, Swiftly Diana dons a blonde wig mm. and black garments, the garb of Earth 2's foremost feminine yes. fighter. Yes. Um, no. <laughs> I don't know, maybe Wonder Woman's kind of does it casually on weekends or whatever at this point. And also, you know, not to spoil her things, maybe just to hint at what happens in part two of the story, you know. Mm. Not for very much longer will Black Canary be the, the foremost female crime fighter on Earth oh. 2. We won't dwell too much on that, listeners, because we don't want to spoil what happens next week. <laughs> Another point I want to bring up is when Aquarius blasts Superman with a cosmic rod. Superman reacts by saying, magic, more deadly to me than kryptonite. <laughs> That's science. Unless Aquarius is channeling his own power through the cosmic rod, which is fair enough. Yeah, that's possible. Or Superman was perhaps exclaiming his enthusiasm in the way that perhaps, <laughs> you know, someone from the west central part of Scotland might exclaim, I often do. If something's really good, I will say magic. Maybe he's been sarcastic in a West Central Scotland type way. Magic. Oh, blah, 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 blah. Maybe that's what it is was. Is that the defining characteristic of Earth 2 Superman <laughs> at this point? <laughs> Absolutely. The Earth 2 Superman grew up in Glasgow and is very sarcastic. They didn't grow up in Smallville at all. Those are his defining characteristics. <laughs> I jest, of course. I jest. Mm. 
all in all, though, it was a bit formulaic. I really enjoyed that. It was just such a fun read, and it is very much a setup for part two. And that's, I don't have a problem with that. That's fine. Yeah, and it, it rattles along. It didn't take as long to get through it. Again, the the biggest criticism I'd sort of make is that it feels a bit formulaic at this point. I'm looking forward to when things start getting mixed up. And also, there was a still an awful lot of see what you see detailing in the captions and the, mm-hmm. the dialogue, mm-hmm. which, as I think I said earlier on, I'm getting a bit bored with, but it made it <laughs> much easier to actually just tell the story as far as the recording. <laughs> so that helps. Shall we jump to the contemporary response then? Let's do so. Now, we'll spin ahead to issue 77 to the GLA mailroom. So the first letter, in response to the story we've just read, goes a little something like this. Dear editor, well... It's been a long time since Gardner Fox has scripted the Justice League of America. Seven issues, to be exact. And since then, Denny O'Neill has given us six rather poor stories and one excellent one. The latter appears in JLA number 73. Starlight, Starbright, Death Star, I See Tonight. Denny O'Neill, Dick Dillon, Sid Green, Joe Cooper all combined their talents to make number 73 one of the best all-round issues National has ever put out. Do you think that was the inspiration for the, the ITV Saturday Morning 80s programme? I loved number 73. Sandy Togsvig's finest hour. Sandy Togsvig and the sandwich quiz, I remember all that yes. quite clearly. <laughs> anyway, there, there's one for the American young audience there. The letter continues. To start off my rave review, let me examine the cover. A very nice job indeed. Joe Kubert really put himself out on this one. I'm sure you will receive a large pile of letters complaining that this cover had little or nothing to do with the yarn contained within. What? Well... It's such a fantastic job, I can't really say that this fact bothers me. Well, I think it was quite representative. It's a scene within the story. Yeah, yeah. it's. I mean, the <laughs> fact that some of the other cast members are there as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, to be honest, the kid doesn't really, in the story, doesn't proclaim himself as a rival. But, you know, you've got to sell mm-hmm. a comic, you need a hook on the cover. Yep. Anyway, the letter continues. As for the story, it's Denny's best DC achievement to date. I guess it just took him a while to get something really spectacular, open brackets, like the annual JLA JSA team-up, close brackets, to work with. Denny really has some great continuity between this and the previous-ish, but the real great thing about that was you didn't even know it until you read 73. Every time I see old Reddy, I like him more. He's got to be one of the most original characters in comicdom. The villain this time around started out a little weak, but picked up when the insane angle was introduced. As for the choice of JSA members, I think a fantastic job was done. I was happy to see Wonder Woman, because of her demise on Earth 1, of course, the Superman from Earth 2, instead of our old pal, presumably means the soups of Earth 1, Green Lantern, and most of all, Dr. Fate. I know he's been in almost every JLA JSA story, but still, he's so good, he deserves it. Yes, yeah. I think he should have had his own ongoing comic. What do I know? Mm-hmm. I think Black Canary could have been toned down a bit this time since she's going to be in the JLA from next day shot. Oops, spoilers. <laughs> How did he know that? Don't How know. did he know that? Yeah, I'm not going to dwell on that bit too clearly, listeners. We're going to jump to the next paragraph. Okay. As for, haven't I used that line before? The plot, it'll never reach the heights of the 66 JLA JSA masterpiece. Oh, that's the one that I liked. That's good. But against the other five team-ups, I think it will fare pretty good, especially if the second half is stronger than the first. As in most two-parters, my only real complaint is that once again, JLA didn't fight along with the JSA in the first part. After all, it is supposed to be a team-up, isn't it? Art-wise, Dick and Sid have done again what they have been doing for some time. Great work. My only disappointment here was not seeing an Earth 2 uniform for Superman, like the Earth 2 costume for Robin we saw two years ago. That's a good mm. point. Mm-hmm. He didn't have the stylized S that we will get used to. I'll have to watch out when that first appears. Sure. But I was happy to see... Dylan, remember that Wonder Woman 2 wears sandals, not boots. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe this wasn't as much of a rave review as I thought it would be, but you didn't surpass my beloved 66 adventure either. I'll tell you what, you come through with the greatest JLA story of all time next-ish, and I won't write you a complimentary letter of comment on it. Deal? 
And that's from Brian L. Stable, St. Louis, M.O. Oh, gosh. I wonder if Steve Higgins lives in his vicinity. Mm-hmm. Editorial response to that one is... No deal. We may need all the comps we can get to counter any uncomps that come along. As witness the next one, editor. And the next letter goes... Dear editor, JLA 73 was a disappointment. I had expected something better from Denny O'Neill, who had created my all-time favourite story, Children of Doom, for another outfit. To tell the truth, Starbright was awful. Gosh. First off, the cover. Joe Kubert made a complete misleading one. The scene depicted had only a small part of the story and was not well handled. Rating, C-. Dear. Secondly, the story itself. Living stars? Good grief! Even though it gave a chance for Starman to get into the action, it cost the story its believability. The title itself was not very good. A better one would be The Age of Aquarius, but I suppose that will be (laughs) next issue. One good aspect of the story was the characterisation. Even though I expected Superman to be a little older, like The Flash and since Robin is an adult on Earth 2, Superman would be older too, the apparent concern of Wonder Woman over Superman page 18, panel 5, led me to believe that Earth 2 might not have a lowest lane. Rating C+. But I suppose, by this point, Wonder Woman and Superman will have known each other for quite a long time, so... Very true, very true. She's going to be concerned about her friend, isn't she? Mm Mm-hmm. Lastly, the art was mediocre. Black Canary never looked better, but Starman, Doctor Fate and Wonder Woman looked sick. Dick Dillon is a good artist, but this was his off day. Rating B-. All in all, I'd say this ish deserved a C, but after reading that little bit of dialogue on page 11, I can't be angry. Comic relief is one thing, outright hilarity another. Fortunately, I happen to like outright hilarity. Glad to see the Earth 2 heroes. Anyway, see, I can say something nice. And that's from someone we'll be talking about a lot later on in the podcast, writer Alan Brennert, who's going to write some amazing stories featuring some of these characters. He doesn't do a lot of stories, but every one he does is gold. Interesting. So, yes. I disagree with quite a lot of what he was saying there, actually, to be Mm. honest. Mm -hmm. Oh, well. The next letter from a very important man indeed. Dear Editor, Though it has been quite some time since you've heard from me, I assure you that I've been following the fortunes of my favourite heroes quite faithfully. I haven't missed any of your magazines in ten years. While the loss of the Hawkman and Atom scripts saddens me, my spirits have been lifted, as usual, by the summer-helding appearance of the Justice Society of America in JLA. Wow. This is their seventh appearance since they came out of retirement in Flash 137, June 1963. Certainly the seventh crossover. I'm sure they probably popped up at other points. Anyway, mm-hmm. I can't be pedantic about Jerry Bales, can I? This year was a special treat because it was the first time Denny O'Neill handled the All-Star Heroes. He did a bang-up job as did Dick Dillon and Sid Green. The villain was too campish for my tastes, hey. but the heroes were perfect. I don't think he's criticising your performance, matey. <laughs> I still take it personally. Jerry concludes, I look forward to the conclusion of the tale with its Soko ending, and that's from the legendary Jerry Bales, Detroit, Michigan. Editorial response. It's always a personal pleasure to get a few words from Dr. Bales, the father of comic fandom, says the editor. Fantastic. Now our next letter is from John Lee from Glasgow in Scotland. John Lee from Glasgow in Scotland? I don't think I can read this one out. I think I'll have to get my good friend, comic writer John Lees from Glasgow in Scotland to read it out for us. Over to you, John. Dear Editor, Starlight, Star Bright, Death Star I See Tonight was a remarkable piece, even though the idea of thinking stars forming themselves into councils was 
quite ridiculous. Nevertheless, the star Aquarius was very interesting to study, and there is nothing better than a story with psychological virtues. Aquarius is a very unbalanced star, and it would not surprise me in the least if, in the concluding part, he suddenly repents and restores everything to normal. This latest threat to the Justice Society is one of the most grave ever. Denny O'Neill surprised me, therefore, as I was confidently expecting a more down-to-earth tale. His choice of members was good, an even balance of skill, magic, strength, etc. One item which was sadly lacking from a near-perfect issue was teamwork. I certainly do not want to see the happy faces of those execrable GLA members, but I do feel that when both groups are featured and work together in overcoming the menace, then that issue is certainly something special. Finally, way back in 1961, when the price of your titles was raised from 10 cents to 12 cents, I, personally, was coldly indifferent to the event. This was due to the fact that I was young and stupid then. Also, the price over here, Scotland, kept stable. Nevertheless, this recent price increase has made me think that at 12 cents, we fans were giving far too little for far too much. I feel that to give 3 cents extra is small compensation for the hard work put into each comic. Also, this price increase has come after an hiatus of 8 years and I am certain that it was put off until the last moment possible. John Lee from Glasgow, Scotland. I think Glasgow is like the Tory Glasgow or American like Glasgow, Scotland. There you go, hope you enjoyed that. Thanks guys. <laughs> Thank you John for that wonderful deadpan delivery. Listeners, if you don't know John's work, then you should check out such titles as Sync from Comics Tribe and Hotel from AWA. They are both excellent series. He's also written Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for IDW. And I do believe that when this episode goes out, the collection of his wrestling story, Crimson Cage, should be hitting the shelves in your local comic shop. So please check that out. And again, thanks, John. Yes, thanks for that, John. Amazing. Thank you. Editorial response very mm-hmm. simply says... Coming from a Scotsman, this approval of our price raise is precedent-shattering. The next letter then says, Dear Editor, having been looking forward to this year's JLA-JC team-up, I was overjoyed when the August issues appeared on the stands. I couldn't wait to get home and read it, for I expected something great. Perhaps this is the reason I was disappointed when I finished reading the story. Starlight, Starbright, was a great story. Fine science fiction with a mixture of mystery and suspense. Page 6, for example. Aquarius, I guess this is the age for him, was another reference, I thought it was so funny, was a great villain too. Then why was I disappointed? Well, the reason I look forward to these annual team-ups is because I hardly ever get the chance to see Golden Age heroes in action. However, in this story it seemed like no one did anything, with the exception of Doctor Fate. Sure, Black Canary got to give a judo toss to her hubby, and Starman fell through a skylight, etc., but what else did they do? Each hero got about four panels of action, on an average. I didn't bother to figure it up, so don't quibble about trifles. Okay, harsh. It seemed that when Gardner Fox wrote the stories, more seemed to happen. I hadn't noticed this before because I saw Batman, Superman and company in their own mags, but didn't care if they didn't get much action. But with the Justice Society of America, who's rarely seen, it makes a difference. Don't get me wrong now, I'm not asking Denny O'Neill to copy GF's style, 
I just want a little more action. I guess to sum up, I have to say that this story was good in its own way, but not the way I wanted it. And that's from Steve Grabinski, Virginia Beach, VA. Is that Virginia? I'm guessing so. Well, I kind of see his point, you know. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of characters involved, so, you know. The tr- yeah, exactly, exactly what I was going to say, yeah. yeah. The trouble is when you've got a large cast, it's difficult to give everyone a chance to shine. I thought they got mm. okay. Green Lantern got to create a sword and a shield, and Dr. Midnight mm-hmm. got to hurl some magic, and Starman got to fly, and Dr. Midnight got to throw a blackout bomb. Yep. So, you know, what else do you want? So, Pete's going to read the last letter that we're going to read out. Dear editor, the cover of JLA 73 was tremendous. Unlike the previous issue where Joe Kubert draw the superheroes like soldiers, this issue's cover was drawn much better, although it did seem rushed. With the old shield and stars easily recognisable, it looked like a cover from the earlier 60s, except for the new price. <laughs> there you go, the price again. Mm-hmm. The inside art, as usual, was superb. I'd like to congratulate Mr Dillon on two small points. I think that his drawing of Hawkman on page 23 was the best since he began drawing for the JLA. Secondly, I'm glad he stopped drawing over the borders of the panels. It looked much neater and less confusing. As to the story inside, I don't know where to begin. As in many of Denny O'Neill's stories, the main plot isn't as great as the subplots. He really knows how to handle characters, even from Earth 2. It's just that I don't dig his menaces, such as Aquarius. He reminds me of Never Was, a character I am trying to forget. To see an example of the paradox in Mr. O'Neill's stories, just turn to page 21. The placing of the Justice Society of America in Dr. Fate's magic sphere was a stroke of genius, but to see the childish monster on the opposite page just turns me off. And that's from Stephen Clifford from the Bronx, New York. Editor response is, let's just talk about the next issue, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Next issue being 78. We're going to be doing issue 78, but stay tuned for that, listeners. The final letter in this letters page is from Peter G. Hagg from New Jersey, who's very concerned with this idea he has of killing off Green Arrow. Not relevant to the story we've done today, so we're not going to read it out. He has a big nine-point list of why Green Arrow should be killed. Yes, yes, and we've read out just (laughs) enough letters as it is already. (laughs) After the last few weeks of not having to read letters out, we've had some letters to read out, so that was fun. It certainly was. It's always good to see what people think at the time yep. and to monitor the disagreements and, and how they compare to what we thought. So it was interesting that they did echo mm-hmm. some of those sentiments. Good, good. Well, that's what they thought of it back in the day, listeners. You know what Peter's going to say next. So what do you think about it? Please get in touch. You can email us at theearth2podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you follow us on social media because we'll have some lovely bonus content for you for this and indeed every episode. On Facebook and Instagram, we're at the Earth 2 Podcast and on Twitter, we're at podcast underscore Earth 2. Yes, be sure to check out Instagram and Facebook because at the very least, you'll see a couple more foreign market covers for the stories we've talked about today. Mm -hmm. Always fun to see, I think, anyway. Indeed it is, indeed. Well, on that note, I suppose. Yes, on that note, I've been Peter. I've been David. Thank you for joining us, listeners. We'll see you next week for the conclusion of the 1969 Justice League Justice Society team-up crossover. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening to The Earth Earth 2 Podcast. Transmatter Cube activated. Return coordinates set for Earth Prime. Until then, take care. (laughs) (laughs) I will see you next time. No, let's let, let's what? not have it. Let's just no. feed into the. Let, for once, let's just not have no. it. No, no. <laughs> I'm just getting ready to do the Aquarius voice. <laughs> <laughs>